welcome to the Philia podcast. Philia means daughter. We are the daughters of the women who came before us and we fight so that our daughters may be free. We are a women-led volunteer organization. Our vision is a world free from patriarchy where all women and girls are liberated. We seek to contribute to the women's liberation movement by building sisterhood and solidarity among women locally, nationally, and globally. By amplifying the voices of women, particularly those less often heard or purposefully silenced, and by defending women's human rights. Our podcast seeks to shed light on some of the most pressing issues facing women and girls around the world. Please take from them what you can. In sisterhood and in solidarity, the Philia team. Hello, this is Ruth with the fourth in our Hague Mothers series of podcasts. The Hague Mothers Project is intended to raise awareness about the impact of the Hague Convention legislation on mothers and on their children. Over 100 countries have signed up to the convention, including the UK, the USA and Australia. The latter is known for its particularly narrow interpretation of the law and its disinclination to consider the circumstances which might lead to a mother fleeing across international borders with her children. But to be fair, it's not alone in this. To find out more about the Australian context, I'm absolutely delighted to be talking with Gina Hope Masterton, who's working with us on the Hague Mothers Project. Welcome, Gina. Hello, Ruth, and thank you for inviting me to be a part of this podcast. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. So a little bit about Gina. She trained as a barrister and she's currently a postdoctoral researcher at the Queensland University of Technology in Brisbane. Her research involves looking at transportation justice for Indigenous women in Australia who are DV victims, domestic violence victims, and identifying obstacles to such justice. Both Gina's master's and her PhD focused on the Hague Convention and its effects on women and children. And Gina is absolutely passionate about righting the wrongs of the legislation. In a recent email to me, she wrote, No law which abuses women and children should be left unchallenged. I will do whatever is in my power to get this convention amended. It should have happened decades ago. We agree, Gina. And if this wasn't a podcast, you'd see me punching the air. Okay. (laughs) Gina, I wonder, could you tell us um, how you came to be interested in The Hague? What what drives you? In 2013, my own sister, Rebecca, was Hagued. That's what I call it when women go through the Hague legal process and come out the other end, um, like they've been in a you know, a washing machine and, you know, they're left kind of wondering what happened. So she was hagged because uh, by the the Australian Family Court, actually, she'd been married to an American citizen for a couple of years and had a child. However, after secretly suffering years of DV perpetrated by her child's father, she fled back to Australia, which is her home country, with her infant child. Um, Her husband then used the convention against her and filed a Hague return application with the Australian government. And without knowing anything about him or the circumstances around why my sister fled, the Australian Family Court ordered her to return her child to the USA, um, in effect, uh, to her abusive husband. And um, I'd been a lawyer for about 13 years at that time, and I'd never even heard of the Hague Convention until my sister got persecuted under this law. Mm-hmm. 
I think that's a common experience. We've been talking to lots of people, to lawyers, to academics, to domestic violence professionals, to hate mothers themselves, and very few of them have ever heard of the convention until they're caught up in it. As you say, mm. it's like being put through a washing machine and wrung out and you, you come out the other end thinking, what just happened? Yeah. Mm. And I know we're going to hear from your sister, Rebecca, in a future podcast because you're going to interview her uh, for yes. the Mothers Project. That's going to be yes. fantastic. Okay, so so this is personal as well as professional then, Gina. It is. Um, it's, you know, when I found out just how far the tentacles, tentacles of this convention reach, and the absolute, you know, devastation it can wreak on women and their children. I just, I, I will continue to work to um, kind to make it make it a better law for women. So I've suggested that Australian courts are particularly rigid in their approach to the Hague. Do you think this is a fair assessment, Gina? Yes, I do. Um, ever since the convention came into force in Australia. On the 1st of January 1987, it's been applied strictly in all cases, even in cases that um, where domestic violence is raised, um, it's still very strictly applied with by the family law courts. Um, I did my master's on um, the Hague Convention itself and its background and its the way it operates. And I came across a case from 2008 called Papa Stavrou, and it involved a Greek woman who was living in Greece with her husband, but I think she was an Australian, she had Australian citizenship as well, and he'd been violent to her for, for several years, and she fled to Australia where she had family with her child, um, her son at the time, who was also autistic, and she just had to get away from, from her husband because the abuse was ongoing and she went through a hate case here in Australia and it was one of very few cases where I've seen the grave risk of harm uh, defence exception raised and been successful. And it was only because she had suffered such extreme physical abuse resulting in brain damage where she was having seizures and she had vertigo and she had a lot of brain, brain damage that the family court said here that along the lines, something along the lines of they wouldn't normally allow DV to satisfy the grave risk exception. However, in this case, the woman was so badly affected um, that they let her, the way that they upheld her grave risk, of, grave, grave risk of harm exception. And that's a very high bar set by the Australian family court that you, if you can show you're brain damaged, from physical abuse, then we, you know, we may consider, you know, this grave risk of harm argument that you're making. And quite quite seriously, I haven't seen any other case um, since then. That was about, that was 2008. So it was quite a while ago, 2008, 2009, that um, it's not like that set a precedent and um, DV has been allowed to be, um, a, you know, Evidence of DV has not been allowed to satisfy the grave risk of harm exception. So even, so even that high bar is it's not being followed through in any way? No. I mean, I, I, I sat in on another case a couple of years ago in Brisbane and the mother was from a South American country and her husband was running a drug cartel. And she had clear evidence from the courts there that he was 
a violent criminal. She had domestic violence orders against him. He was 10 or, 10 or 15 years older than her. Um, sort of coercive control and threats, threats to kill her family. And yet the, the Brisbane Family Court ordered her to return her five-year-old son to that country. And she went with the son and apparently went into hiding and I never heard from her again. But um, I hope that they've been safe ever since then. But this is the type of thing. I mean, you can come with boxes of, of evidence of showing that if you return, if your child's returned and that, you know, physical harm could occur and yet the courts will, you know, be so reluctant to not make a return order that it, I was just flabbergasted enough that case. I didn't know what you had to do to be able to um, have a finding made in your favour. I know that in Australia, as elsewhere, concerns about the injustices perpetrated by The Hague are regularly being raised, obviously by you, but also by other lawyers and academics, and even by Diana Bryant, the former Chief Justice of the Family Court, and indeed The Hague itself. I'm just wondering if any of this has changed anything. Um, I respect um, Diana Bryant a lot because she was the former Chief Justice of Family Court and she was part of um, the HCCH committee that looked at this back in 2017 and they put out another guide, you know, another guide to domestic violence-related cases and, well, that was the first time they actually looked, they actually acknowledged that this is an issue, it's a problem, it's a growing problem. But they didn't take that opportunity to go, look, we're going to really make change here, we're going to amend it, or we're going to, like, tell signatory countries that they should really look at their own laws and maybe add some kind of, you know, DV defences into your your own laws so that these cases are handled differently. They kind of just put out another guide which said to judges, you know, do what you think is right kind of thing, you know, to nutshell it. And... Um, that's not really telling judges that this is an important issue and they really need to look at the facts of domestic violence-related hate cases. Mm. So that was kind of a wasted opportunity and I was very disappointed in that. The only good thing about that was the HCCH has acknowledged only four years ago that domestic violence-related case hate cases are growing in number. So, um, you know, nothing's changed. <laughs> nothing, you know, nothing really changed here. I'm, I'm really interested in your approach going through stories, so getting to the real human heart of the matter, you know, rather than sort of staying at the legal level. Um, some of those stories, I'm sure, have been quite profound in their impact on you. Uh, do you want to give us some examples of women who've tried to flee with their children and been sent back? Well, what I found, Ruth, with the 10 women I interviewed was they all had tried to access help in their countries with the authorities there before before any notion of leaving um, occurred to them. So they all went, you know, they got um, domestic violence protection orders, they sought legal advice, they they went to um, doctors and psychologists, and they, they tried what they they tried to get the help they could through the available resources they had until it came to a point. And some of these women were abused for years. Um, and then it came to a point where I found that when it really started affecting their children was when they thought, you know, where they realised they had to get out of it some way. They had to put physical distance between themselves and their abusers. So it was around about when they, their children became school age that they, I found there was this pattern where the, the women would, 
finally decide that they had to physically remove themselves and their children from, you know, this toxic environment. And, you know, you know, nine out of the ten women had, you know, uh, professional or academic qualifications, were running businesses or were working in professional jobs. They, um, they were intelligent and accomplished women who just ended up finding themselves um, in a situation with, you know, their partners becoming abusive and it gradually getting worse over time. Um, and so they had some similarities like that. But, um, yes, just had tried to utilise the system to protect themselves and their children before eventually leaving. But then when they do when they do leave and they're in a situation where they're going through the hate process, particularly in Australia, I, I found that the judges here were very harsh. They were very judgmental. They were very... They, they, um, they took it very personally. I mean, it wasn't just a, an administrative-type matter, which the Hague is. It's administrative, it's civil, it's not criminal. Um, but the judges here really did treat the women like they were child abductors, that they were, you know, had done something criminal. And the women felt that way too. And, um, yeah, it's just devastating. They lost everything. They lost their homes. They lost their incomes. They lost their careers. They lost most of their personal effects, they lost relationships, they pretty much lost everything and some of them even lost, you know, contact with their children. Um, some of them lost their liberty, you know, some were like um, threatened with going to jail um, if they didn't um, cooperate with uh, the authorities. So there's a lot on the line when you cross an international border with your child. So these decisions are not made lightly um, but judges don't seem to take that into account in Australia. They kind of just look at you as um, someone, you're a woman depriving a father of time with their children, which is um, a very narrow view to take. Yes, it is indeed. So have there been any successes in terms of women being hagued, as you so beautifully put it, and actually managing to not return with their children? Um, no, <laughs> they all had to return. Um, what is good news is three out of the ten, once they did return, uh, once you do return and you um, uh, abide by the Hague order to return to return your children, that they don't return, they don't order the mother to return. They don't really, they don't, they can't do that. They they order the child to be returned, and then the mothers go with the children because they want to, they choose to. And then once they do, um, they have to then deal with the domestic family court in their jurisdiction to then, you know, deal with child custody issues and parenting issues. In some cases, the fathers have already gone to court and gotten full custody of the child while the mother was in the other country. Like in her absence, they managed to go to court and get orders giving them full custody of the child. So once the mother comes back with the child, the, the father's allowed to swoop in and and take the child and if the mother doesn't go to jail then that's a positive but then she's left like I said without anything and starting your life over again um but three of them that I interviewed three of the women got relocation orders so they were um, able to which took a lot of time and a lot of money um to get orders allowing them to relocate back to their country with their child which is what they did in the first place <laughs> only they had to get they only had to get returned and then do the relocation application so 
yeah, it's a big circle, but three of them got to go back to their home countries with their children. And what I can say about all of them is none of them returned to their abusive partner. So that's a bonus. Um, I was happy for them that they didn't have to do that. Um, but, yeah, but their lives are forever altered, forever changed and not in a good way. I mean, that, they carry that with them for the rest of their lives, this whole Hague experience. Absolutely, yes, it has, has a profound impact. And, of course, an impact on the mother has a huge impact on the child, which is the other aspect that the Hague doesn't seem to take into account, that being parted from your mother, your primary carer, has an impact. Absolutely. The more I hear about the Hague, the more I wonder if if it's beyond redemption or if anything can be done to make it a viable piece of legislation. What do you think? I think that it works extremely well for the cases that it was designed to deal with, and that is um, cases involving non-custodial fathers who kidnap their children from their mothers and their homes and, and take them to other countries, and that's what it was drafted for. And I think it works very well for those types of cases. However, when it's applied to cases involving abused mothers who are fleeing domestic violence as a last resort with their children, it completely fails. It fails the mothers, it fails the children. And it is, it just needs to be, um, it needs to be amended. It needs to be amended in by the HCCH and all it would take is the insertion of a few specific domestic violence-related defences added to the convention. If it can't be done there, if it's too hard, then each signatory country really needs to look at their own law, their own Hague law, um, their own Hague regulations, and add their own domestic violence uh, defences into their own laws because this cannot continue. And the HCCH in 2017 finally got together and met. It was the seventh meeting of the Special Commission on the Practical Operation of the Hague Convention. And they said, and, and they, they realised, they acknowledged that domestic violence-related cases are is a big issue and they're happening all the time. And yet all that came out of that was yet another book, book of guidelines. So um, that's a step in the right direction that they're acknowledging that this is an issue. However, that's where it finished. So I think it's up to each country now to recognise this is a problem and to take steps by amending their own laws to better protect women and children. Mm. That's, that's an interesting approach because the idea of sort of tackling the 100-plus signatories to the convention all at once is, is quite an overwhelming idea, isn't it? But, yes, if each country can do something towards this... That, that might help. Um, and last question, Jean, and thank you so much for all your input and your expertise and your passion. What do you hope the Hague Mothers Project might achieve and what made you decide to be part of it? Well, I am honoured to be a part of this amazing project um, with all the amazing women who are um, putting their hands up to try to make change in this area. And I just really hope that our combined voices and experiences will be heard and understood by those who have the power to end the suffering of women and children who are damaged by the convention. Um, I just, I, I want to continue the fight for this change in recognition of my own sister um, who went through it, the 10 mothers I interviewed for my PhD project 
And for all the mothers who are getting who are getting hagged every single day around the world, who don't appear in the media, who, who there's no statistics statistics kept, um, you know, who are just another kind of um, hague story that you know not everyone will get to know about. So you know we have to you know if we have to battle the patriarchy to get this changed um, to make life better for abuse women and children, then I feel it's the least I can do. And as a feminist human rights lawyer, I owe a duty to women who find themselves facing this convention. And um, I'll take every opportunity offered to me to work towards getting the changes made. Thank you so much. You are an inspiration. You truly are. Um, I, I actually came across you, didn't I, several years ago when I'd met a Hague mother. And I was reaching out across the world to try and find out who might help. And I reached out to you and you immediately replied with such warmth and compassion. I thought, this is a woman I want to work with. So it's <laughs> fabulous to be working on this together with you. Thank you so much. And thank you for taking part in this podcast. Thank you for working on the Hay Mothers Project with us. And also, we look forward very much to hearing from some of the women whose voices you've help, helped amplify in our future podcasts. I know you're going to be interviewing some of them as part of this project. So that will be fantastic. And I hope we hear from you too in the future as we progress and hopefully make the changes you've suggested. Thank you, Ruth. And um, I'm happy to do whatever I can to, um, to get, this, uh, get this all happening. <laughs> wonderful thank you Gina hear from you soon we need to raise awareness about the Hague Convention please help us by sharing this podcast and others in the series if you have experiences or expertise to contribute please get in touch with us at Philia and if you can come to the Hague Mothers Session at the Philia Conference in Cardiff in October thank you for listening Thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. We are incredibly grateful to all the women who donate their time and their efforts to create this podcast. That includes our guests, our interviewers, and our editors. You can find us on your favorite listening platforms like Apple, Stitcher, and Spotify. Just search for Philia Podcast. Please help us reach even more women. You can do that by subscribing to our show, by sharing this podcast with your friends, with your family, and with your co-workers, or by leaving us a positive rating and review. Philia organizes the largest annual grassroots feminist conference in the UK. We would love to see you there. You can support our work by joining the Friends of Philia scheme, by giving a solidarity ticket so that even more women can join our conference, and by subscribing to our newsletter. Please take a look around our website, philia.org.uk, to find out more. Together, women make magic happen, and we can't wait to be in touch with you. <laughs>